are in Ecclesiastes going through the Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word, every bit of it, Lord. And Father, I just particularly thank you for this picture before us this evening of what life would be like, what would be going on in our mind, what's the best that's out there apart from Christ. It's right before us in Ecclesiastes 1. Solomon, trying to figure out the meaning of life in a backslidden state. And Father, we just thank you because through your word, our hearts are warned but they're also encouraged because we have so much in Christ and we thank you for that. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Solomon started off wonderfully. Remember in our study of First Kings, he really did. Took over the throne when he was probably 17 years old, 18, maybe 19. Lord said, I'll give you whatever you want. Ask for it. Ask for wisdom. And, you know, some people actually think that um, he should have asked for the same heart as his father, David. He wouldn't have come to the place where he got to where we meet him in Ecclesiastes, which is a man filled with raw intellect, just that raw uh, wisdom. But he's apart, apart from the Lord in these verses. And it's a, a tragic thing to uh, go into First Kings and reading the account of him turn, turning away from the Lord. Again, as we've been saying throughout, three things, Moses on the plains of Moab before the Israelites went over into the promised land, three things he told kings not to do, multiply silver and gold, multiply chariots, and multiply wives. Solomon did all three things, and it was, the Bible says it was particularly uh, the wives thing that turned his heart away from the Lord. Second, uh, First Kings 11 says, King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Now today is in the body of Christ where Jesus is just, wherever you go in the world practically, you can go and find born-again, spirit-filled believers. Uh, this it means a little different, this thing about loving foreign women uh, uh, then as it did today. Then it was synonymous for being in love with a woman who followed after foreign gods as well. It says that Solomon loved the women of the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor shall they with you. Surely they will turn your, away your hearts after their God, Solomon clung to these in love. It says he had 700 wise princesses and 300 concubines. His wife and his wives turned away his heart. 
it says, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcon, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. So his heart hardened. And so interesting thought, you know, should he have asked for the heart that his father David had? And I just love the contrast between the book of Psalms and Ecclesiastes. I mean, it could not be any more stark the contrast between these two. David, whose heart was just filled with life for the Lord. And even though he did sin, he sinned grievously. In fact, at one level, you know, his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah were arguably worse uh, than what Solomon did. Well, Solomon did, it appears, to have engaged in child sacrifice, clearly a very wicked thing. But what David had is that heart that always went back to the Lord and gave up all his sin and and placed it at the altar um, of God. So one of the things that happens when you turn away from the Lord, and this goes as well for a backslidden believer today, is you no longer, or you at least have great, great difficulty seeing things through the eyes of God. One of the wonderful things about being born again is that you begin to see the world through the eyes of the Lord. And uh, the world and even the future of the world and your future starts looking a lot, lot different. We've quoted this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, very well-known verse. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But... God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. But when we are in a backslidden state, can't hear the still small voice anymore where it's too crowded out by uh, other voices. And so um, I think of uh, Solomon here trying to figure out the meaning of life in Ecclesiastes. You know those films, those pictures of, of the Titanic that you see? I mean, not Titanic before it went down. Titanic today. You know, it's, it's murky and there's like, you know, what is it? Seaweed and sea moss all over all the stuff. That's the best you can do apart from the world, trying to figure out the meaning of life. And you really, we have seen it uh, here in Ecclesiastes. So picking up again in uh, chapter 8, it says, Who is the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the sternness of his face is changed. Now, if you've been following uh, with us through Ecclesiastes, you may be asking yourself, wait a second, isn't this inconsistent with Ecclesiastes chapter 1, where in verse 17, Solomon said, this, in verse 17, he says, I set my heart to know wisdom. And it says in verse 18, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So why is he saying here in verse 1 of chapter 8, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the sternness of his face is changed. In other words, you know, a stern face is sort of brightened uh, when a person has wisdom. Well, you know, one of the difficult things about reading Ecclesiastes and interpreting it is it's sort of written in stream of consciousness, or stream of conscience. That's a literary style. Anyone ever hear of James Joyce? 
Now, who's read, read James Joyce? Who's read him? Wow, I am impressed. This is an erudite crowd here. Um, did you read Finnegan's Wake? You're kidding. I've never met someone who read Finnegan's Wake. I need to sh shake your hand after. But very difficult to understand because he just sort of writes whatever on his mind. It comes into his head and makes no attempt to connect any of the thoughts. It's sort of like how this, uh, how this uh, book here is, is written. And so what happens is that you do have these disconnected thoughts. And every once in a while, Solomon, using his raw intellect here, and he had more than anyone who ever lived, comes up with a golden nugget of truth. And we've talked about that. And here he's just making uh, the point that, you know, it, it, given the choice between complete ignorance and complete wisdom, complete ignorance is worse. And there is this sense, you, you know, if someone is, has been completely uh, ignorant of everything, uh, you know, you, you travel to some countries that know nothing of the things of God. And in addition to that, uh, complete lack of education. There's a hardenedness and there's a sorrowness. And Solomon is just pointing out that wisdom can brighten uh, brighten the countenance there. Of course, we know that uh, just one of the most wonderful uh, verses in the Word of God, everyone's, uh, most everyone who uh, ha has, has been a Christian for a number of years knows about it in F uh, Philippians chapter 3, about what happens to your countenance when you really, uh, w when you get to know godly wisdom and you get to know Christ uh, Paul says in Philippians 3.8, Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of her sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And just, you can almost feel there the countenance of the writer. In fact, my own countenance is just lifted up as I'm thinking about the same thing. Just knowing Christ and what it does to a person's countenance uh, well, Solomon's not talking here really um, about the fullness of knowing Christ or, or God, but he's just pointing out, you know, it is true, co complete ignorance, uh, wisdom has this, you know, you know one, of the, um, one of the results of, of, of someone gaining wisdom, it has a tendency to, to make them shine, their countenance lifted. Verse 2 said, I say... Keep the king's command for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases, pleases him. So he's saying, don't, don't mess with me, is essentially what he's saying here. Verse 4, where the word of a king is, there's power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful, and a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because for every matter, 
For every matter there is a time and judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. For he does not know what will happen. So who can tell them when it will occur? And so some things in the Ecclesiastes for a born-again believer, they're just not true. It is not true that um, we sort of, the, in Christ, we have no idea what's going to happen, as it says in verse 7. For he does not know what happens, what's going to happen. So who can tell him when it will occur? Uh, we've been given so much about what is going to happen in our life. The Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And even if our life is taken away, we, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Verse 8, No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. He's just saying there, no one has power over his life and death. So this is true. Uh, no one does. And no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war. And wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. And so he has this struggle, as every person does. Uh, one of the things that happens to a person who's in a completely backslidden state or someone who is just apart from God trying to figure out the meaning of life, they have a, a, this, the, he calls it here a war. It, it, it's like a, a great struggle and fear of death. It, it, it's what happens. It's what happens in the unredeemed life. Just a great struggle uh, with the fear of death. In Hebrews 2.15, it says that Jesus releases those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so death here is a big theme of Solomon's. He's trying to figure out the meaning of life apart from God. He's completely backslidden. He's always he's bringing up this death thing uh, continually. Just yet again, another one of the things that we're saved from when we give our life to the Lord and when we walk in the Spirit. Uh, we're not sitting around being plagued with the fear of death. Now, my own testimony is this. I really, really struggled in this area before being saved. I would go two or three weeks convinced because I had some pain, whatever, in my stomach that I was going to die. I, I, I would be talking with people, and they'd be telling me, so what are you doing this summer? And I'm thinking to myself, well, little does this person know I'm going to be dead by then. And, and it sounds funny. At the time, it was awful because it was paralyzing, this fear of death. One of the first things that went when I became born again was that, the fear of death. It, it, I can't say it vanished, but I, I, I could say it, 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 it almost disappeared. It was no, never really ever a struggle ever again. And that's the struggle of, that Solomon's having. It's, he calls it a war here in verse 8. Uh, and he's just griping. No one has the power over death. And in the beginning of the verse, verse 8, no one has the power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. Ver, and then later on in the verse, there is no release from that war. I mean, meaning it's like you're in the struggle against death and you're not going to win this war. Wrong. The Bible says, death, where is your sting? When we are in Christ, death no longer has a sting. So, so much you hear in Ecclesiastes, it's just not true. But 
it was put here by the Lord. God organized these thoughts exactly into uh, this book so we can have a picture of what we're saved from when we give our life to Jesus Christ. It's one of the most encouraging books in the Bible. It's either that or the most depressing, uh, depending upon uh, whether you've given your, your life to Christ. Verse 9, all this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. So, again, we've talked about this. Solomon, preoccupied with life under the sun, S-U-N. This phrase happens over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. He's, pr- he's utterly uh, obsessed about this life, under the sun. If he had only known what life was under the sun or in the sun, S-O-N, that's what he doesn't have. But every time he starts thinking about this life under the sun, S-U-N, he just reaches these morbid conclusions. At the end of verse 9, this is actually an interesting one. He says, there is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. What he's speaking about there is he's the king, he's serving the people, and he's doing it to his own hurt. Meaning, you know, at the end of the day, people don't are not appreciative of him. They just basically punish him because, you know, they complain, oh, that Solomon guy, you know, he, you know, he just rules for, you know, for building all these big palaces of his. And and that's what he's talking about there. Now, someone who is in Christ, walking in the Spirit, will learn, really, ministry is no different. So oftentimes, you're in ministry, and you're in ministry to your own hurt, meaning the very people you minister to oftentimes are going to be just like Solomon's subjects. But the good part is, is that when, you know, and it can be discouraging to be sure, but when you're in Christ, you know who you're serving. You're serving the Lord. You're serving God. You're not serving flesh and blood. And so, again, wow, what we have been saved from. But if you don't have Christ, this very thing gets you very, very bitter. And that's why, you know, some of these secular mission jobs that people take to, to go overseas and help orphans or whatever, apart from any kind of spiritual help. Just the, the burnout rate is just so high because people after a while just realize this is useless, this is worthless. Now, the attrition rate amongst Christians is fairly high as well, but it is so much higher. I mean, I've known a number of missionaries out there for 20, 30 years serving joyfully because they know who they're serving. And so he says, there is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. This is another interesting one here. He's a smart guy, this guy. Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity. What is he talking about there? He's talking about your classic thing where there's a wicked person who they had been a part of the temple. It says they had come and gone from the place of holiness. People who regularly, they were religious people. They went to the temple. But they were also wicked people, and everyone knew it. But then at their burial, it says, everyone seems to have forgotten about how wicked they were, and they're all talking about how great the person is. And, you know, we see this, right? We see this today. 
and we can at least have an eternal perspective on it. And I have been. I, I remember being at a funeral exactly like this. I knew a guy. I tell you, one of the meanest dudes I ever met, this guy. Just this mean dude. You know, unsaved guy and, uh, and uh, really uh, as hard of a heart that you'll ever see. I went to his funeral. Man, to, to listen to how they talked about him, one could have concluded he was, the guy was an angel. Uh, and, and, and so, but that's what Solomon's saying. He, he's, now oh, this is just so bogus, you know. Some person like this, a complete hypocrite, he dies, and then everyone's talking about um, how great he is. Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So a completely different thought here. Again, stream of conscience, he's just like all over the place uh, here. A completely different thought. This particular thought here, he's talking about how you know, law and order people love this verse. They quote this verse. Uh, in, in fact, I think they may be partially misquoting it, but they, they quote this for, you know, someone does something wrong, you need to send them to prison for 35 years sort of deal. It's saying here <coughs> that when someone does evil and there's not justice executed speedily, the heart of the sons of men becomes set on doing evil. And, and there is truth to this, right? If there's not speedy justice and this, uh, the justice system just drags on forever, people will say, wow, <laughs> I can get away with doing all these bad things, you know? Look at, how, look at what a sham this justice system is, how long it takes to execute justice, and people will be even more bent on setting evil. And it's true that we, uh, we certainly should do our best to try to make sure the justice uh, system d- uh, moves fairly rapidly. Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who, who fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days which are as a shadow because he does not fear before God. Now, so he, he says here uh, that you know, a sinner, he does evil over and over again, and yet sometimes you see his days prolong. He says in verse 12, but, no, but even so, <clears throat> you know, the, I believe that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. Now, I think by the end of this chapter, you'll see, you'll, you'll see him saying the opposite, uh, where it, it doesn't, he, he says something where, to the effect, it doesn't matter whether you're doing good or bad, you're going to get killed either way, and there's no benefit for it. But here again, uh, from time to time, you know, he's just musing here. He's thinking out loud, and he's writing his thoughts down, and he's just coming to the conclusion that, you know, sometimes you'll see a wicked person, and their days are prolonged, uh, you know, I don't fully get that, but the person who fears God, um, things will go well with him. But we'll see him contradict himself real soon. Verse 14, there is a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked, 
Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. So it didn't take very long, right? One verse. He says something completely different. What he's saying in this verse is it's, it's so meaningless. If you're righteous, you're, you know, bad things happen to you. And if you're wicked, good things happen to you. Now, again, apart from Christ, he's not going to understand uh, God's perspective on this. And what is God's perspective on this? The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and send rain, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. A person apart from Christ will never be able to figure out why it is that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. It'll just vex them. Whereas we, as born-again believers, who now have the mind of Christ, can understand that it's like that because God is love. And he wants to, he loves the wicked so much, he blesses them. And, and, you know, bad things happen to good people because he's building a testimony in their lives. The first good man ever born of, uh, of woman, Abel, was struck dead. First time a bad thing happened to a good person. But the Hebrews 11 says his testimony speaks to us even to this day. So, but Solomon's not going to get that when he's in this state of his um, apart from the Lord. It just vexes his spirit. So I commended, so verse 15, and we've already read this. We read this in almost every chapter, this kind of thought. This is sort of where he often sort of ends up at. So I commended enjoyment. In other words, I, rec- I just recommend to you just to go out and enjoy yourself. Because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. And so what he's saying here, uh, again, is, look, the best you can do in your life is stick your head in the sand as to all the vanity, meaningless, meaninglessness, and injustice in life. And just go try to just eat, drink, and be merry, enjoy your work. In the next chapter, uh, in verse 9, he says, also, by the way, hang out with your wife. You know, just somehow try to block out all this meaninglessness and vanity all around you and just, just do those things. And that's, that's the best way, to sort of eke out uh, some kind of, of pleasure on planet Earth. Verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom <clears throat> and to see the business that is done on earth, even though uh, one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Once again, not true. The Bible says that God reveals it to us by His Spirit. 
But truly, apart from the Lord, if you decide to become a philosopher and try to figure out the meaning of life, it will be one amazingly frustrating exercise. Okay, chapter 9. Excuse me. All right. For I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise in their works are in the hand of God. People, people know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. Nice positive statement there. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices, and to him who does not sacrifice, as is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath and he who fears an oath. So everything happens, the same thing happens to everyone, regardless of whether they're a good person, a bad person. They come to the temple, they don't come to the temple. They are good, they're unclean, clean. Same thing happens to all of them. Not true. The Bible says, whatsoever a man uh, sows, he will reap. That's what the Bible says. But here he is, just sort of um, all depressed here um, about and, 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 and confused. And it's, again, that picture of the Titanic, which has been under the ocean for 100 years, just moss-covered, murky kind of view of God's world there. This is an evil and All that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Not true. Jesus told the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. One goes to hell, the other goes to heaven or the bosom of Abraham if it was prior to Christ. In one place, it's a place of torment. The other place is a place of worship and relationship with a, a living God. It's not true that one thing happens to all. Truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Well, this is true. The Bible does teach this. Madness is in their hearts while they live and after they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. If someone wants to explain that one to me, please do after the service. Glenda, do you know the meaning of that one? For a living dog is better than a dead lion. You go, you go home and read the commentaries. Verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. So here he gets real morbid. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. We are told that there is a reward for living for the Lord. Verse 6. And also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. There's obviously some truth in that. So go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. In other words, again, try to sort of block out all this depressing stuff I'm talking about and go drink wine with a merry heart. For God has accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Just speaking to the anointing of oil that uh, used to be done. Yeah, I think we should reinstitute that, don't you? Just pouring oil on people's heads? No? No one interested in that? Okay. I think maybe we should. Anyway, I'll shut up. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, 
all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your, uh, your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Again, same thing here, uh, that you're just sort of trying to uh, eke out uh, this, this life and stick your head into the sand about all this vanity and meaningless, this existentialist sort of depressing truth around you and just go do your work as hard as you can do. I think, though, of the heart of his father, David, who said in Psalm 16, speaking to the Lord, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 13 says, But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 17, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness, speaking to the Lord. And I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Oh, man, what a stark contrast between this man, David, who is just filled with the life of God and someone who has left God trying to figure out life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't know, it's like drinking, it's like pouring water on my soul when I move from Ecclesiastes to, uh, to, to the Psalms there. Verse 11, I returned and saw under the sun, <laughs> this is really uplifting here, that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. Meaning there's sort of this arbitrary uh, hap- events that happen in their life which, in which they may be swift, they may be strong, they may be wise, they may be very diligent, but they're, they're going to wipe out and be uh, wiped out anyway and, and all that will come to naught. You know, how different than the book of Proverbs also written by Ecclesiastes but written by him at a time where he really had the Spirit of God. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says this, You see a man diligent in his business, he shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mere men. And, and compare that again to, uh, to here, which says in, at the end of verse 11, it says, Nor there will there be favor to men of, of skill. Uh, that's not what the Proverbs say. Verse 12, For man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of man are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon him. You see him still? He's in the struggle against the thought of death. It just doesn't go away. It's just nagging at him. Ugh, this 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 death that is is coming my way, and it won't go away. Compare that to the life of a believer. I love the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Finally, 
There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He's speaking of death here. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. So death actually becomes a friend to someone who is in Christ. Clearly here in Ecclesiastes, death is the enemy. Death is the enemy. Verse 13 of chapter 9. This wisdom I have seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that same poor man. So again, it's this random thought that sort of interjected here that this, 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 this poor man who was a wise man saved a city, but no one remembers his name. But in Christ, and I have to just, I must insist on keeping coming back to this thought, in Christ, we're not living for reputation or vainglory. We're not living so that our name is remembered someday. We're living for the glory of God. And for that reason alone. Again, uh, Solomon trying to figure out life here. Verse 16, then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So those are a couple of of, of golden nuggets of truth there, which do, as we have said, uh, uh, appear from time to time uh, here in the book of, uh, of Ecclesiastes, verse, uh, chapter 10. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment. You know, your guess is as good as mine where this came from. But uh, uh, he's <laughs> uh, that's true. They do. Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. The Bible says as believers in Christ, we, need to be a, we are a sweet aroma to the Lord when we're walking in the Spirit. But it is true, all it takes is one person, one gossip, one per- person with a complaining spirit, a murmuring spirit, to get in and turn the sweet aroma and... Uh, basically something that, that has a foul odor. So this is true. And then it goes on and says, so does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart is at his left. And just the right hand, nothing against you left-handed folks, but so the right hand symbolizes honor there, and, and, and that's where wisdom uh, should be. Verse 3, even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom, and he shows everyone that he is a fool. If the spirit of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offenses. So in verse 4, this is uh, the type of thing where you know, you wonder maybe Solomon blew up at someone someday, one of his trusted servants, because he was in a bad mood. But it says, if this happens to you, verse 4, don't leave your post, for conciliation pacifies great offenses. In other words, let's just wait a little while till the ruler calms down. 
uh, and things will get better. So again, he's just um, throwing out these, these nuggets of wisdom that he's coming up, again, through sort of raw intellect and experience, which, um, which can happen. Uh, even apart from Christ, uh, there is wisdom out there. You can go find it, go read Confucius, whatever. There's pearls of wisdom there as well. Verse 5, there is an evil I have seen under the sun as an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity while the rich sit in a lowly place. So probably once a month someone comes up to me, you know, I was at work and some guy who he doesn't know his right hand from his left, he got, got promoted and I got passed up. That's what this is talking about. Now, we can know that the Lord's in, con- in control, but when we don't have a relationship with the Lord, it's going to cause vexation in our heart. Verse 7, I have seen servants on horses while princes walk on the ground uh, like servants. The same thing. He just doesn't like any kind of a uh, lack of equity uh, or fairness uh, that he sees in it just makes no sense to him, and it's grinding away at his soul. He who digs a pit will fall into it. Just ask Mordecai in the book of Esther. He built a gallows somewhere to hang someone, wound up getting hung in his own gallows. And did, did I say Haman? No, I said Mordecai. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Haman, not Mordecai. Mordecai wound up being the prime, mini- prime minister. And whoever breaks through a wall will be bitten by a serpent. So, you know, someone is trying to sort of accomplish, either overcome an an enemy or something like that and and break through a wall and uh, this this type of thing. But certain serpents hang out there. I remember being over in Dover west of the city, and seeing my daughter down there in one of the mills that are made about 100 years ago, and she was trying to get a turtle or something down there, and all of a sudden I see a big old snake right over her head, right over it on a rock. She was like down here, there's this this rock uh, wall, and I'm like, oh man, this is bad, so I got her away from that from that serpent. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. It speaks for itself there. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. Some of these uh, verses here read very similar to to the Proverbs. They are good, solid wisdom uh, between now and the end of this chapter. A serpent may bite when it is not charmed. You know those serpents, you know, the guys, the, the cobras and the snake charmer and this type of thing. That's what uh, he's referring to there. And the babbler is no different. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow them up. So you probably, if you look over at your references, if you have a reference Bible, you'll see all kinds of references to Proverbs, these next few verses, because they're very similar Proverbs to these. The words of his mouth begin with foolishness, and the end of his talk is raving madness. A fool also multiplies words, 
No man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? The labor of fools wearies them, for they do not even know how to go to the city. So when there's a fool and they're trying to work and put in a good day's work, they accomplish very little. Verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. I'm just referring to the fact that sometimes uh, uh, a king would die and the king who took over was six years old. That could be a big trouble if the king, the new king, was not surrounded by uh, good people. Sometimes they were surrounded by good people. If you remember Josiah, he took over, I think, when he was eight. Is that right? Eight or six, something like that. But he had a priest. I forget the priest's name. I forget that priest's name, but it was a really solid priest. Joash was the same way. Joash became king when he was about eight years old. He had a real godly priest, though, who who he was around, and it was okay. But he's just bringing up the point here, though. That's not always the case. Woe to the land when your king is a child. Verse 17, blessed are you, O land, when your king is not the son of nobles and your prince feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So if, if you're, uh, the leaders of your land are just sort of pigging out, getting drunk and parting, woe to you land is what he's saying here. Because of laziness, the building decays and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. This is true. Get a... F- Keep your house up, or else it'll start leaking. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes merry. But but money answers everything. Not true. It's not true. But this is the conclusion of a man who is uh, in the state that he's in. Do not curse the king, even in your thought. Do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom. For a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. So you've heard that expression, a little bird told me. I was, yeah, I was thinking, you know, that sounds like something that would have come out of, I don't know, England in the 1800s or something. Not so. 3,000 years ago, Solomon, probably much predated him, just uh, speaking about, look, if there's someone over you in authority, like the king or your boss or whoever, even in your thought life, even in in, in a shut bedroom, you better write your heart. Because it's going to come out and it's going to get you into a lot of trouble. Okay, we will finish up Ecclesiastes next week, 11 and 12. It just, I, I just want to leave with this. Again, this is an encouraging book in the sense that, wow, this is what the Lord has saved me from. But in Christ, it doesn't have to be like this. You know, Solomon's, his statement here, in the earlier chapter we read, it's better not to even be born. Not so. We can have just, a, Jesus says, I came to give you, not only give you life, but give you it to the full or more abundantly. And, and, and this is just uniquely placed right in the middle of the Bible just to, to remind us of the contrast of what we can be saved from. And, and even when our thought life starts getting like this, it can just be a reminder you know, I'm listening to lies. Solomon spoke lies, the same kind of lies that I'm listening to now. Lord, help me. Help me. That's not where I want to be. 
You know, I want to be um, like David, who says, at your right hand, Lord, are pleasures forevermore. And so, uh, really, truly is an amazing, amazing book. And I think I shared with you before, one of the great authors in the early 20th century, Thomas Wolfe, uh, who's a different guy than the, the guy, there's another Thomas Wolfe who's a writer who is, who's alive today, but this other writer, considered one of the smartest people who ever, you know, lived in America, he supposedly read almost every book in the Harvard Library, concluded this was the best work of literature in the history of the world, Ecclesiastes. He was not a Christian, but he, he's, he read this book and he was like, wow, this guy has really put together this amazing piece of literature. And, and he was basically agreeing that, yeah, this is about the best we can do here. But we've been saved from that. We've been saved. We've been given the abundant life where, where you know, we can be, our very life can be an aroma to the Lord and to the people around us. Praise the Lord.